Tēnā no mai, hi to mai. Welcome to q and I'm Jack Tame. Today, could there be big changes coming to the South Island's west coast? You'd be obviously uh, against any more um, sawmilling of native trees here. That's just out of the question, isn't it? I can't answer that today. We take a closer look at the history of methamphetamine in New Zealand. In green fields or brown fields, the debate over where to build houses in our biggest cities and the changes a national-led government may bring. This doesn't make me popular when I say these things, but like, I feel like it's like 80% the same plan as, as Labour's. We'll have that interview for you shortly, but first, hurry up and wait. Nine days after the special vote results were published, four weeks, 14 hours and one minute since polls closed, we can confirm New Zealand is still waiting. Negotiations between National Act and New Zealand First have continued throughout the week. Because we're now more than 28 days since polling day, a constitutional quirk means Chris Hipkins and his ministers need to be sworn in again by the Governor-General. Most of the ministerial warrants will roll over but because Nanaia Mahuta missed out on being returned to Parliament, Grant Robertson will be New Zealand's next Foreign Minister, at least until the new government is sworn in. The time it's taking to organise a new government put New Zealand in an unusual position at the Pacific Islands Forum this week. Alongside outgoing Deputy Prime Minister Carmel Sepuloni, National MP Jerry Brownlee attended as a representative of the New Zealand government for what was the biggest piff ever. And Jerry Brownlee is with us live this morning. Kia ora, good morning. Good morning, Jack. To what extent did our slightly unusual governing arrangements at the moment affect the contributions that New Zealand could make at PIF this year? I don't think to any great extent. One of the things that's important uh, in our dealings as a, as a country with the Pacific is consistency uh, and uh, to, to affirm for them that uh, we're a solid uh, supporter, uh, friend and, and uh, very reliable for any of their needs. And I think... Um, as it, as it happens, we could have decided uh, between the two parties, the governing part, the caretaker government and, and national, that there is no one uh, going. Uh, but, uh, you know, with inside those parties, party to do what we hope will be a coalition very shortly, uh, and the caretaker government, there was understanding we needed to be there. And so uh, it didn't affect us too much at all. Carmel Sepuloni went up to Aitataki for the uh, leaders' retreat. Uh, and I spent that uh, second or third day of the, the uh, meeting um, in bilateral uh, discussions with others who want to contribute to the Pacific. So quite useful. Perhaps the most notable outcome from the forum this year was Australia's deal with Tuvalu. So for those who aren't familiar with what was agreed, Australia has guaranteed millions of dollars in climate adaptation assistance and what is a wide-ranging support and security deal with Tuvalu. As well as that, Australia will give residency to hundreds of Tuvalu residents every year, especially those who are affected by rising tides and climate change. What did you make of the deals? Oh, I think it's a very good deal, and I, I take my hat off to the leadership of Tuvalu for being prepared to recognise that they needed to do something that was uh, uh, fairly practical in the short term. So it's 280 people a year uh, at this stage, uh, and uh, to empty Tuvalu would take about 40 years, but that's not the intention. It's to make it life a bit easier for those who are most affected by, by the uh, sea level rise. So I think it's a very good deal, and I think Australia have done a 
uh, the right thing. Mm. Remember alongside that, though, that New Zealand has three realm countries in the Pacific who hold New Zealand passports, uh, New Zealand citizens, Niue, the Cook Islands and uh, Tokelau. So uh, we have a, a similar arrangement. We also have, of course, 1,100 people that we take uh, as of right every year from uh, Samoa. Mm. So, uh, you know, migration out of the Pacific is uh, not something that's uncommon. Uh, I think one of the things that worries Pacific governments is that they could be emptying out some of their, their brightest and best. And so mm. there's another challenge around that as well. What was very interesting uh, about the deal was that Australia essentially demanded exclusivity of sorts of Tuvalu. So if Tuvalu were to end uh, any other wide-ranging agreement with another nation, they would have to have the Australians sign off first. What was the significance of that element of the deal? I think that's not unreasonable. Remember that Tuvalu citizens uh, under this arrangement will be able to access Australian health care, Australian education mm. uh, and many of the other aspects that Australian citizens uh, get. So I don't think that's a, a particularly uh, concerning thing. I think also uh, the deal, remember, uh, sought by Tuvalu, not imposed by Australia, uh, effectively recognises the long-standing arrangements uh, constitutionally, uh, democratically, freedom-wise, etc., that uh, uh, Tuvaluan citizens uh, obviously appreciate. So New Zealand in the past, though, has criticised exclusivity arrangements between other Pacific nations and China. So how can we support the Australia-Tuvalu deal if we have criticised the exclusivity in other deals? Well, it's quite a different situation, isn't it? Because Tuvalu is losing uh, landmass on an annual basis, mm. uh, talking about perhaps uh, 100 days a year with some very severe uh, tidal flooding in Tuvalu. That makes life extremely difficult. So they are living in a, a compromised circumstance. The other very important aspect of this is that Tuvalu uh, wanted this deal. Tuvalu uh, uh, proposed the deal and put it on the table and Australia simply picked up aspects of it. Is a Tuvalu-like deal something that New Zealand would consider in the future with any other Pacific nations? I, I can't predict that. I, all I would say is that, as I said before, we have mm. uh, three Pacific nations that have New Zealand citizenship and uh, a long-term deal with Samoa which sees that 1,100 uh, uh, people having the opportunity to come to New Zealand each year. Uh, obviously, uh, climate change is a huge concern to Tuvalu and many other low-lying Pacific nations, and climate change makes up a big part of PIF's Blue Pacific strategy going forward in the coming decades. What, what was your impression as to how much climate change featured on the Pacific Islands Forum agenda? Uh, look, I attended the, the plenary session where they were setting out, essentially, what the agenda for the Pacific Island Forum Secretariat should be for mm. the years uh, ahead, or the year ahead. And, and it is a factor, a big factor. And I think what worries the Pacific nations is that even if they were to be net zero themselves, the, the overall effect of where the world's heading is having a, a, an unequal amount of uh, effect on them. So it's a big, big, big deal, no question. But that Pacific Blue strategy has 12 points in it. Uh, and I think if you, if you think about uh, 18 different governments effectively uh, having to agree on things, uh, very difficult to get that. But when you've got 12 points that can be part of the contribution to uh, the well-being for people, uh, that the, the 
connectivity of the Pacific, you, uh, climate change, you arrange it. There's opportunities for every one of them to contribute at some level in that strategy. So it's a, it's a pretty good way of going about things to maintain uh, the strength of that Pacific voice, which the PIF does. Vanuatu Climate Change Minister Ralph Regan Vanu criticised your party's policy to restart oil and gas exploration. What is your response to his criticism? Uh, I think, um, you know, fair enough, he can, he can make that criticism, uh, but it's going to be a very long time before the world is completely away from fossil fuels. It will be uh, at the end of that process, I suspect, that uh, Pacific Island countries are removed from uh, the need for fossil fuels. At the moment, a lot rely on it for electricity, uh, but they totally rely on it for transport, both sea transport, air transport. Mm. Uh, so if you think of uh, something like gas as being a transition fuel, uh, then I think uh, you, you've got a reason to enable what would be a commercial decision to explore for it. All we're doing is removing uh, the objection to the commercial uh, decision-making. And I think it's reasonable because New Zealand is also a country going into transition mm -hmm. and uh, we are going to be uh, also a, a, a number of years before we are completely free of fossil fuel. I appreciate the next foreign minister is yet to be named and sworn in, but from your vantage point, what do you see as being the most significant shifts in New Zealand's foreign policy under the next government? Uh, well, that, that, of course, will be uh, ultimately determined by uh, the incoming foreign minister who will take uh, that propo any proposals around that uh, to um, uh, Cabinet. But if I can just comment on the Pacific, I think um, uh, remember that it was under a, a previous national government that the uh, emphasis went back into the Pacific and then you had the uh, uh, Pacific reset uh, under the Ronald Winston Peters. And so I don't think anything will change uh, other than for uh, you know the better when it comes to our, our relationships with the Pacific. Internationally, um, you know, I don't, New Zealand always tries to present a, a united view and we don't have huge differences uh, internationally between uh, the, any of the parties that have been in government in the last however long. And I think that sort of approach will, will continue. It's important for us. We're a trading nation. Mm. Uh, we're out there in the world. We enjoy a lifestyle well in advance of what we could do uh, for ourselves. COVID proved that. And uh, so yeah, we've got to, got to have a, a front that uh, is, look, looks consistent and reliable. Finally then, uh, coalition negotiations. Any bombshell revelations you just want to give us this morning before we let you go, Jerry? Oh, well, I'm sure that if I thought of something, I'd be able to uh, excite you, but um, uh, best not. <laughs> i just pick you up on the uh, nine days since the uh, finals. It's actually been uh, five working days, uh, So, and, and our guys have been working through the weekend. Remember that you, you take the time at this point uh, to make sure that you are going to have a program that will be uh, stable over the next three years. I'm absolutely confident we're going to get there. Hey, thanks uh, for your time. Well, we will get there, and sooner rather than later. Hey, thank you. We really appreciate it. That is National MP Jerry Browning. After the break, we're on the South Island's West Coast, where new West Coast Tasman MP Maureen Pugh is literally riding high.
Hoki Maiti, we welcome back. Among the electorates to swing against Labour in the 2023 election was the traditional party heartland on the South Island's magnificent West Coast. And in part, it may have been because a traditionally supportive industry turned against Labour. Fina Owen reports. West Coast Tasman's new MP is proudly showing us around Hokitika's industrial heritage park. Welcome to the big engine shed. Step this way. Maureen Pugh is famous for having been hit by lightning three times. So if I could hook you up to the national grid, Maureen. <laughs> well, I'd be happy to help. <laughs> and twice she's got into Parliament on election night, but was knocked out by the special votes. So that's why I never really crowed about the election night results, because the specials I know can make a big difference. And they solidified her win against Labour's Damien O'Connor. O'Connor had held the seat since 1993, apart from national snatching one term in 2008. The historic mining town of Blackball on the west coast is credited with being the birthplace of the Labour movement, which became the Labour Party. But in the last election, the west coast has turned its back on Labour. In terms of recent history, Labour actually abandoned the west coast. What are you all hoping for with a change of government? Well, we're just hoping for um, things to, to boom with the employment, um, open up some of the mines. There's thousands of tonnes of coal up there and we need to get it out. Congratulations, Maureen. Thank you, Barry. The voters have spoken. So it'll be an opportunity for you to make some headway for our mining industry, possibly. Oh, that's a nice plug, Barry. <laughs> mining on the coast represents $183 million in GDP, the third largest contributor after agriculture and tourism. Grey District Mayor Tanya Gibson. Your local economy is quite healthy at the moment, though, isn't it? Well, it is quite healthy, and there's a lot of industry at the moment, but that's why, you know, we kind of don't want to shout too loud that we are doing well, especially when we were under a Labor government because of all those regulations that were hanging over our head, all those proposed um, no new mining on dock land. Nikki Snowyink is Forest and Birds Conservation Manager for the region and has a different take on the new government. My concern is that the work, the hard work that we have done the last few years to get good protection on the West Coast for conservation could, could be undone by the new government, so everything we've achieved could be rolled back. Near Hokitika, the coast's new MP takes us to meet local Ian White at his open cast gold mine. We wouldn't survive with the previous government as far as what we're doing. You mean in mining? Yeah, yeah. 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 They just want too much from the miner. But this is private land which will soon be filled in and turned into pasture. The local mining industry, backed by their MP, want access to dockland. The stewardship lands holds all the cards for us. And so um, that's where all the alluvial gold is. No one wants to go and mine the national parks like everyone thinks of. Foreign mining companies are also hoping for a reversal of the ban on new mines on dock stewardship land. Some of those big operations are out of the reach of locals, so we have to call in those big foreign investment companies. 
would describe what's happening here is the new West Coast Gold Rush. Yeah, so this is the uh, the first site um, that the mining company has um, is looking to mine. Not gold, but mineral sands, much of it used in technology for the switch to green energy. One mining operation's up and running, five more around the coast are waiting for consents. This one is on Barrytown Flats farmland on the famous road to Punakaiki. So we are looking at 50 um, heavy truck and trailer movements every single day, so it is relentless along this coast road, which is a celebrated tourist route. It's a beautiful drive, isn't it? Yes, it is. One yes. of the top ten highways in the world. One of the top ten highways. In the... So is that a worry if that's turned into an, an, an um, industrial throughway? Uh, well, I think it's one of the trade-offs, you know, that we have to have. We, we could lock ourselves away and not do anything, um, or we can open ourselves up to some of this stuff. Independent commissioners will decide whether the Barrytown mine gets the green light, but the grey mayor is fully supportive. They're going into electric cars, they're going into wind turbines, they're going into your cell phones, into your cameras, into your clothing, into your toothpaste, cosmetics, you name it. They are they also going into weaponry? Do we know? You know, because that, that's what some people are, yep. are worried about. They, um, they go into Boeing for aircraft, so then we go into weapons, they go to NASA. They go into weapons? They do, well, so they you feel cool about them. that? About well, I don't feel cool about that, but I mean, they go into a multitude of other things, so if we focus on the negative. Of all the minerals needed for the transition into the green economy, there is one that is prized globally in big demand, and it's been found around some of the old gold mines in the hills here on the West Coast. And the word on the ground is that as an industry, it could be worth billions. That mineral is antimony. It's used widely in military applications and is the key element in the development of long-life batteries that don't catch fire. The so-called greenies on the coast are now being accused, they say, of not supporting the move to a green future. But they insist the proposed mines and dams are just in the wrong place. Visitors don't expect to see uh, the place dug up or um, trees chopped down or rivers stand up when, you know, it's sort of like an oxymoron, isn't it? When you've got untamed natural wilderness, then you see on the other side it being destroyed. You'd be obviously uh, against any more um, sawmilling of native trees here. That's just out of the question, isn't it? I can't answer that today. Environmentalists up the coast insist the region could be a global model for a nature economy, honouring the coast's tourism slogan, Untamed Natural Wilderness. Um, it is untamed and it is wild, it is the west coast, um, but uh, we are also a community that needs to survive into the future. Uh, we can't do that on tourism. Fina Owen reporting there. We wanted to know what the mining industry is expecting from the changing government and whether it'll mean a significant shift in policy when it comes to areas that can be mined. Josie Vidal is a representative of mining industry body Stratera. I asked her what changes she's expecting under the new government. So we're looking for a more uh, enabling, permissive policy and law environment because 
the world's actually on the verge of a mining boom, and the reason for that is the renewable energy and the highly electric future we're moving to is very uh, intense on minerals, mined minerals. So what we've got in the world at the moment is a situation where there's demand but not the supply to match it. And in New Zealand we have supply, so we want to be able to join this boom and uh, because it is for, for a future that everybody wants. Specifically, what land do you want to be opened up for new mining? So the situation with mining is you can only mine where the minerals are, so it's not like we pick a place and go, let's mine there. The place picks us. Um, and so there is uh, mineral prospectivity on the conservation estate. No one wants to mine in the national parks, and mm. that's absolutely off limits. But what happens with mining? So it's a temporary use of land. Mm. So it takes a long time to get a mine up and running. And as it's mined or when the mining's finished, the land is put back to how it was before, if not better. So the mining companies are involved in a lot of environmental work mm. alongside DOC and environmental groups. Yeah, I'll, I'll come back to that in, in a moment and, and the efforts that are made to try and return the land to what might resemble more of its natural environment. When you say you want to open up more of the conservation estate, can you be specific with us there? Are you, no. are you talking about stewardship conservation land? So we are asking in our briefing to the incoming ministers that they abandon the policy to have no, no new mines on conservation land and that they abandon the stewardship land review because we think it's a distraction that's not necessary because all the steps are in place to look right. after that land. What about Schedule 4 land? That's been Absolutely not, right. no. It's a, the, the pristine national parks stay as they are and everybody appreciates that. And there probably is mineral prospectivity there but we know it's a no-go and, and absolutely support that. So specifically, what minerals should be mined in New Zealand? So one of the first things we're asking from the new government is to follow what Australia, Canada, the UK, Japan, Europe have done and have mm -hmm. a critical mineral strategy. So that's what do we need for this highly electric future? How are we going to get it? What do we have here? And how are we going to contribute to this big global movement to have all these minerals mm. and to have security of supply. There is a minerals and energy strategy that takes us through to the end of this decade. Yes, and that doesn't have a critical minerals list mm. and the previous government was working on it and we're very keen to have that released. And there's a number of reasons we're keen to have that because it does... Uh, mining is very capital intensive mm. and the money comes from out of sight of New Zealand because it's large sums of money. For the past six years, the international investment market has been quite nervous about New Zealand's policy direction. So we want the government to say, hey, we're open for business and there is minerals here that we're quite happy to mine and they will contribute to the slow emissions future. Should we increase coal extraction? So coal is necessary and it's necessary. So with this, with mm. the big electric future, so if the sun doesn't shine, the wind doesn't blow, the rain doesn't fall, the, you have to have backup. Pumped hydro. If the rain doesn't fall, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's so interesting. I'll, I'll tell you a little story about India. So India uses a mm. lot of hydro. They have had a shortage, they've had a floods in some area that have mm. taken out the hydro and dry in another area. Now they import only 4% of their coal needs. They've increased that to 6%. Mm. We export coal to Asia, yep. and in total our exports of coal to Asia are 1.3 million tonnes around that. The 
extra 2% that India's after is 90 million tonnes. So 70% of India's electricity runs on coal. Mm. So there is a, a global need for coal. There are countries where it's so hot and so cold you cannot have uninterrupted mm. supply of electricity or people die. Mm. <laughs> and so what future are we after? Because if we go fully without any backup, say no to coal, what's going to happen when, when we don't have electricity? Right, I mean, what would be the climate impacts of that, of increasing coal extraction? Uh, well, there's not, there's no climate, not very little climate impact on an extraction. Sure, but it's, it's extracted to burn, right? Yeah, and so when our coal goes to places like India, their mm. coal is high ash, ours is low ash, so it's actually better for the environment. Obviously, people want to stop using coal, but at the moment, people are using coal. We have coal. We have coal mines on the West Coast, where mining is about a fifth of the mm. GDP. Uh, it's highly productive, highly paid, mm. massively contributes to the communities where it is. I, you talked before about the, the efforts that often follow large-scale mining operations to return the environment to something akin to what existed before mines were in place. Is mining in our long-term environmental interests? I think so, because that, uh, I've gone and witnessed that work. And the biggest threat to Indigenous biodiversity in this country is, in fact, introduced pests and weeds. So rats, stoats and possums. Mm. Mining companies on conservation land do um, eradication of pests and keep that pest population under control because they're replanting all the time and mm. they're replanting the right plants and the right trees. Yeah, I mean, I look at Stockton, for example, that requires millions of dollars a year to treat acid mine drainage and will require treatment for most of the rest of this century. I think in 2020, the total government liability for that was estimated at about $83 million. Look at an application to extend the Deniston uh, extractions. Quote, the applicant has developed a comprehensive rehabilitation plan that would represent the best techniques available. Despite this, however, the full recovery of all ecological values lost would not be achieved even in the long term. I would question that last bit because um, a lot of science goes into fixing what's done. Um, and so... I, I would encourage people to really investigate this and see what's actually going on because mm. mining has changed and so some of those mines on the west coast have actually taken over what were state mines um, and the state didn't do anything mm. to look after the land. Times have changed. Right. A lot of the people I speak to who work in mining say first and foremost I'm an environmentalist. They're there to do the work to put back mm. and a lot of effort goes into it and a lot of science. Yeah, you were talking to us about the, the reputation for New Zealand internationally when it comes to being open for business mm. and there's some concern within um, minerals and, and, and the mining sector over the last few years that perhaps there was some uncertainty around New Zealand's position. How do you balance in your view the short term incentives when it comes to mining with New Zealand's longer term clean green reputation because you have you know you have you have conflicting reputational risks, right? Yeah, so it's a myth that mining is in some way plundering New Zealand. It absolutely is not. The, the mining on the conservation estate is at 0.04% of the mm. conservation estate. So if you've got a pie graph, it's a barely visible line. Mm. 
So there's not this massive But it's visible to, to visitors, for example, right? Not uh, to the West to, Coast, for example. It's not that visible. If you're tourism. cycling up that road, it is not visible. You have to go and look for it. What about the trucks going past or the trains going past with coal in the back? And so what, what is our future? What is New Zealand's mm. future? And, and if we're going to be completely electric, what happens when we have an Optus situation like they had in Australia the other day? What happens when the electricity goes off? And there's no no backup. Are we prepared? Are you okay with that? Well, I'm sure I'm sure some people would say that options like pumped hydro, for example, would give us um, just as an example would give us some sort of an alternative or backup. In you know, if we were to have a 100% renewable, yeah, 100% um, renewable grid, is mining in the long-term interests of regions like the the west coast when it comes to their economic interests? Absolutely, because it's it's one of the most productive sectors in New Zealand. New Zealand has a productivity problem mm. um, compared with other OECD countries. It's highly productive, highly paid, and that money goes into those local communities. It's boom and bust, right? Uh, it's going to be boom for a long time. So the, the people making the... So everybody wants an electric car, right? Mm. The, there is not the supply of minerals to make the electric vehicles that the world wants. Mm. So those companies are sucking up those minerals as quickly as they can. They're buying mines. There is a lot of future for mining. And mm. do we want to be part of it? Or are we going to import absolutely everything? Well, I just I look, I look at the history of, of, of mines in New Zealand and it's littered with examples of kind of boom and bust um, scenarios. Waiuta on the west coast was a mine that was abandoned after a mine sh sh uh, shaft collapse, or Huda, Mace Town. Uh, these are all places that were that enjoyed a boom and then were completely decimated um, when the economic situation changed. Look at when Solid Energy went into receivership in 2015. Westport mm. suffered an economic collapse of sorts. So, so, so our history suggests that actually things are great for a while, but then when things change, these regions suffer massively. That is, that is the past. I can't see the future, but I can tell you there's going to be a massive uh, requirement for minerals for a very long time to come, up to 2050. Mm. Um, and then they'll be replacing everything again. So it is going to... We're, we are moving to a more mineral-intensive future. So uh, an electric vehicle has way more minerals in it than a combustion engine vehicle. A wind turbine has made more, way more minerals in it than mm. a gas-fired power mm. plant. And if we're going to be completely reliant on electricity, we have to have a big picture, a strategy, a what happens if. Mm. You know, it's very dangerous to have no plan B. Mm. So the mix of backup for the renewable energy it's not open season, mm. but it's prudent. Mm. You know, you can't just say no today until you have affordable, accessible, readily available alternatives. So what kind of feedback have you had from the MPs who are likely to be ministers in what is likely to be the new government? Right, so we've been working closely for... Um, well, certainly since the time I've been at Stratera, with the people who are now going to be in the government, just to make sure they're aware of the opportunities. So I'm very positive about mining, as you can see, um, and I think there are massive opportunities, and I don't want the door to be closed mm -hmm. to them, I want the door to be open. And what sort of feedback have you had? I, and I feel like there's understanding that the... Um, so there's a lot more willingness to, to listen. Mm. There's understanding that, OK, we're all promising this future, but how are we going to get there? So a bit more strategic thinking. And where's the plan? You know, 2030 is not very far away. 
Where's the actual plan to get us there? That is Josie Fidel from Stratera. If you want to contact the Q&A team, please call it on Y. These are our main platforms. You can find us on email, X or Facebook. Coming up, a look at the history of meth in New Zealand. But next, six weeks from the big day, that's December 25th, what do these guys have to do with the future of Auckland housing? Tēnā koutou, welcome back. The debate over how best to grow our cities looks set for another twist. As part of the election campaign, National pledged to make the medium-density residential standards optional for local councils. Along with its plans to incentivise more consenting and increase housing density along transport corridors, it's the party's policy to open up more city-fringe greenfields for development. But when does and doesn't developing on greenfields make sense? Shane Martin is a transport and land use specialist who, after working for Auckland Council, is now the principal economist at transport firm MR Cagney. We discuss the future of housing in our biggest cities. We met on the fringes of Takanini by the Christmas trees and the traffic. Shane, yep. what are we looking at? Uh, we're looking at a paddock. A paddock that for now at least is set to remain a paddock. Shane, we are right on the outskirts of Auckland. There are houses two minutes down the road, businesses, schools even. Why hasn't this been developed into housing? Uh, the flood zone comes right through this area. So like, this is a, a, a flood area and that's primarily why I would say historically it hasn't been housing, yeah. is it's not a coincidence that there's housing nearby but not really here. Until last week, these greenfields had been penciled in for future urban development. Property listings here explicitly advertised land banking potential as Auckland's population surges and housing pressures intensify. But citing flood risks and infrastructure costs, Auckland's council voted to keep the paddocks as paddocks. This area is in a flood zone. Yep. Which means that if you were to develop houses here, you were to develop infrastructure here, you would need to somehow try and mitigate for that flood yeah. zone, which would be incredibly expensive. Yeah, so the problem is not that it can't be done. The problem is that it's very, very expensive to do. So was it the right decision? There's no secret that we need more housing. We need more housing in the right places. And I think that's the key with uh, this decision was that it was decided that this isn't the right place. Approaching New Zealand with an outsider's perspective, what do you think are the biggest issues we have when it comes to growing and developing our cities? I mean, this is a really complex issue, right? Because there's things that are within control and things that are not within control, right? I mean, we're an island kind of at the bottom of the earth away from everywhere else, and that means it's expensive to get things here. But really, uh, I mean, there does just seem to be a strong very entrenched view of what housing is and should be and is supposed to be and I get the sense that there's a lot of trying to retain that at all costs almost. So in a city like Auckland for example that is growing really rapidly yeah. there is a, a portion of our society that holds on to the quarter acre dream as mm. opposed to more intensive mm. versions of housing. Yeah. Yeah, and I would say I totally get it. I also would like to have a quarter acre, a five minute walk from the city center and, um, you know, and have it cost what it cost in 1985. But 
that's just not the world that we live in. People are making the trade-off now, we're seeing as intensity has been allowed somewhat, um, between having, say, a townhouse or an apartment with really good access to where they need to be during the day versus the quarter acre, but it's, it's further away. And so they're trading off that sort of commute time and convenience for location. There are some interesting conversations mm. being had at the moment with regards greenfields and brownfields. Yes. Can you just give us an absolute idiot's guide? What, what is a greenfield versus a brownfield? All right, so brownfield, simply put, is a place where development has already happened. And so it's really, I mean, this is, like you said, idiot's guide. So like there's some nuances here, but it's largely where things have already been developed and you're redeveloping, that would be brownfield. Greenfield is where you haven't developed before. There's no infrastructure in place or very little. And it's sort of uh, taking a paddock and making it in the housing or maybe a golf course. So talk to us about the upsides and downsides to Greenfield's developments in a city like Auckland. Okay, um, so I mean, Auckland, like most cities, uh, you know, you start at the middle and work out, it's developed out. So Greenfield kind of by definition is almost always further away. It's the furthest parts away of the city. The downside of that is really access to jobs and services and I mean, anything you can think of. Uh, it's a paddock mm. you know the stuff isn't there greenfields areas often don't have very many jobs in them which makes sense because they used to be farms and so everybody is now traveling and they're often traveling all in the same direction at the same time and you can imagine the issues that creates especially in a in a city where you know we have decent public transport for new zealand but probably not you know on a global scale in many ways, right, the, the infrastructure is easier. In greenfields, it's easy to dig up a paddock and put in water pipes. The, the challenge there is you need a lot more of it in terms of uh, a dense sort of brownfield area. So you need a lot more of it to serve the same number of, of houses because they're typically further apart. Brownfields, on the other hand, you have to navigate around existing mm. infrastructure you do. which adds complexity yeah it does it's it's i would say it's a more complex thing it has advantages in that you know to serve a thousand people you probably need much less of it but it's disruptive when you put it in how do you think auckland has balanced the development of greenfields and brownfields up until this point so that's a a really good question and the reason I say that is there have been a lot of successes so the Auckland Unitary Plan which came uh, became operative in part in November 2016 I believe November 15th um, you nerd <laughs> yes yes um, I believe it was the 15th in the nicest possible way uh, Shane. yeah somebody will write in and say I think it was the 16th um, but uh, now I believe it was the 15th of November 2016 and that really took enormous parts of the city and made it so that they could accommodate much more density. Um, that doesn't mean it's a perfect sort of document and you have seen that with the way uh, central government said, okay, well, here's these other rules you need to follow as well. I feel like they've done an, an okay job balancing that. Um, when I first came here, there was talk around, we want to have 
the 70-40 rule, which you'll notice doesn't add up to 100. But uh, we want to have you know, up to 70% infill brownfield development and up to 40% uh, greenfield. And what we've seen is actually people are building at about 80% in brownfields. So it's, it's much more. Um, and I would argue that's without even allowing the most desirable places to be developed. That's really interesting. Why do you think uh, so much of the development has been focused on infill or on brownfields? I think it really just comes down to access and, you know, everybody, you know, it's the Kiwi quarter acre dream. Uh, in the US, it's the American dream. It's basically the same dream, right? The house with the yard and, you know, the, the family and the white picket fence. I don't know if you do the white picket fence here, but, um, you know, it, it's that, but then people are realizing, well, I'd really like to have that, but not if it takes me two hours to get to work. And I'm willing to trade off that for maybe a townhouse with a smaller yard, but a park nearby. Five minutes from the floodplain paddocks of Takanini is a new community which has been given the green light for development. We're still in Takanini. This is quite different. I see established trees, but a brand new development. Yeah. Is this a green field or a brown field? Well, this is sort of that gray area between green field and brown field. This was a former golf course. Uh, there's housing on both sides here. And so um, it doesn't kind of fit neatly into those boxes that we talk about. But in Shane's eyes, it does represent a vision of good medium density. Communal resources, a park, playground, supermarket, cafe and amenities all close. If National's housing plan is enacted, mm. what will it mean, do you think? Um, so I feel like this doesn't make me popular when I say these things, but like, I feel like it's like 80% the same plan as, as Labor's, uh, for better and for worse, uh, in my professional view. They have a thing around you have to immediately unlock uh, is it 30 years of development opportunity. And a lot of places in New Zealand, that's already the case. Um, I mean, especially places with low growth, but those are generally not the ones we're worried about when it comes to, to housing and housing provision. Yeah. Um, and so, like in some ways, it's not a lot of change. One of the things that worries me about it, um, and this is more just from a, where does it end up? Because I've said kind of flippantly in some lectures and webinars and things that I've done where it's like, well, we can just zone the entire North and South Island for mixed housing urban and we'll have an 10,000 year supply of developable land, but that doesn't actually accomplish anything, right? It, it, like you can zone whatever you want, but if it's not in the right places and in places people want to be, um, then it won't do anything. And so getting it in the right places is the key. And I don't think there's a, a lot in there around that. There is some, particularly around transport nodes. But, uh, and for a lot of places, that's probably good enough. But for places like Auckland, Wellington, it might not be. Finally then, if you were the Tsar of everything Ooh. in New Zealand, you were Auckland Council and central government embodied, mm. What would you change in order to make the better urban centres in the future? I've said it a few times here. I think really just 
allowing development to happen in the most desirable places. In Auckland, we have the very predictable and uh, thing where the most desirable places are closest to the city center, but that means they're also the oldest places because that's how cities grow. They don't you know, skip a bunch of land and then fill back in. Uh, the oldest places are right near the city center, which is typically where all the jobs or lots of the jobs are. You really can't do a lot there because of the special character overlays, which are aimed at maintaining the, the, the classic villas that everybody likes to see. But there are, you know, I think at last count, it was something like 20,000 of these uh, dwellings in these special character areas. And it really takes out a lot of sort of places lots of people want to be. And this is not me advocating for, well, let's just get rid of all heritage, all special character, but there's a trade-off involved here. Maintaining that means that people now have to locate much further away. It also makes prices higher. It also makes it so that only the very wealthy can live near the city. That is transport and land use specialist Shane Martin. Next, 50 years ago, you could get a prescription for methamphetamine from your doctor. But after decades of cracking down on the drug, we ask why pee is still such a problem. Welcome back. It's almost 25 years, a quarter of a century, since methamphetamine use exploded in New Zealand. But despite the well-documented dangers of meth use and high-profile busts, tens of thousands of Kiwi adults are estimated to use methamphetamine every year. The history of the drug in New Zealand and the government's policy responses have been meticulously documented in Mad on Meth. The author is familiar to many of our viewers, Benedict Collins. Kia ora, good morning. Morena, Jack. Um, let's go back 25 yeah. years. Between 1998 and 2001, pee use in New Zealand increased almost 1,000%. What was it about that period that led to such an influx? Yeah, so, so it did increase radically, right? But it came off a very, very low base. Very few people were using methamphetamine. And then in the late 90s, things did really start to take off. You know, people started basically figuring out that they could take pseudoephedrine, cold and flu medicine, you know, add some other ingredients and cook methamphetamine and it just absolutely exploded. But I think, yeah, like we said in the intro there, I think a lot of people don't quite realise that it was, you know, in the 50s and 60s, methamphetamine, you, you could go to the doctor, you could get a prescription for it. It was mainly um, middle-aged women who were getting prescriptions for methamphetamine, but amphetamines also were really widely available. Um, and for a long time, you didn't even need a prescription, right? Sports teams were using them. There's this um, really interesting letter of a complaint from the Waikato Cycling Association who wrote to the national body saying, we're really worried that all the cyclists, the um, recent national champs were like taking, they called them pet pills, um, yeah. meth and amphetamine pills. You know, incredibly widely used in New Zealand and they just weren't a problem. One of the favourite things I got in the book was actually I looked back through the Hansards and in the 1960s, a National Party MP stood up in Parliament because um, some people were raising concerns about how widely available amphetamines and meth were. And he was like, no, no, amphetamines are a great boon to society when they're used correctly. So they weren't that controversial. It's a national MP. Yeah, yeah, right? Like, yeah, yeah kind of delicious looking at, um, looking at things, you know, where national stands now on drugs. But, yeah, they, they weren't very controversial. They yeah. were widely used. You know, often media stories would just talk about, you know, 
a pianist trying to break a record, um, you know, was popping amphetamine pills as he did it. It wasn't controversial. But yeah, 1975, things really changed there um, with the Misuse of Drugs Act coming in. Mm. And then it was, yeah, pretty quiet. We didn't, there were a few sort of articles in, in the press over the next couple of decades. But then, yeah, in the late 1990s, things really took off. People started cooking. And you can just look even at the meth lab bus, like there's one or two a year in the 90s. And by the early 2000s, you're starting to get one yeah. or 200 a year. It really took off. Why does pee have such a stigma compared to some other drugs? Yeah, it's, it's interesting, right? I think, one, it, it is highly addictive, OK? So they, they think... Basically, if you get to the point where you're using methamphetamine regularly, you end up with about a 15% chance of becoming addicted to methamphetamine. And that's horrific, right? When I've talked to lots of people in the, uh, throughout the book who, who have you know, been heavy, heavy users themselves yeah. or have you know, come out the other side or, or are still using, um, you know, and their lives get turned upside down. One of the things I thought was quite interesting talking to a lot of people who had used meth is they say it's only once they've kind of come out the other side and realised... And, and, and got clean and looked back and been like, wow, my world was upside down. Mm. They didn't really appreciate that at the time because the drive's just so strong to keep getting methamphetamine. I think, yeah, in, in terms of the stigma, I think you know the way the, the media talks about methamphetamine all the time um, really contributes to that. Mm. You know, and I sort of talk about that in the book. We do, we've done it with every other drug in the past as well, but you know, once a government outlaws a drug, it's regularly referred to as, you know, as a demon, as it's evil, it's a scourge. And that does kind of put stigma mm. on the people who use that drug, right? And it really becomes quite a stigmatised substance. I want to consider some of the policy responses yep. over the years. How do you reflect on the pea house saga? Yeah, I mean, that was really interesting, right? So but the government was really struggling. You had these really high-profile, horrific crimes that were tied to methamphetamine. Think, you know, Anthony Dixon with the, the samurai sword for one. So the government kind of... Uh, was struggling and, and lots more people were starting to use it, especially in the early 2000s. So they came in and they banned pseudoephedrine. And at around that time, the Ministry of Health got together and they said, hey, look, so, there's so many meth labs in houses now. We need to come up with some rules mm. to make sure that they're safe to go back into. And so they looked around the world. And that's, and that's because when people are cooking meth, they're using other chemicals as well. Overseas, there are examples of people like using lead, highly toxic chemicals when mm. they're manufacturing methamphetamine. The concern that those, those chemicals will contaminate houses. That's right. And so methamphetamine was always like the marker chemical. They yeah. weren't so worried about the, in the original guidelines, about the meth itself. But it was the detection that was the marker chemical. If you could get meth down to a very tiny number, and we're talking like half a millionth of a gram, then the house was safe. But what the um, Housing New Zealand and the government kind of did was say, hey, look, we're going to go into houses, we're going to test, and if we find any methamphetamine at all, then you're in a world of trouble. People were getting, like, evicted from their homes mm. for a few millionths of a gram of methamphetamine. And the problem with that is, as Fair Go pointed out many years ago, was that, you know, you pick up a banknote in New Zealand, it's got methamphetamine on it, meth sticks to surfaces. So people were getting... You know, evicted from their homes for mm. a few millionths of a gram of methamphetamine, often, especially with Housing New Zealand tenants, who where tenancies change quite a lot, you know, there was no proof that these people had ever e even used the substance themselves. Yeah. You know, it was a government out of control. Yeah, it, it's really interesting to consider some of the other policy responses. You mentioned the um, pseudoephedrine ban yep. in yep. New Zealand. So since that ban came into place, the size of methamphetamine busts in New Zealand has grown and grown and grown. And the price of methamphetamine in New Zealand has dropped and dropped and dropped, indicating that actually the supply has increased in New Zealand. So has that been effective? Well, 
well, there's, there's two parts to this, right? It was kind of highly ineffective in a way because it made it a lot harder for your, your small-time methamphetamine cooks to get their hands on the precursor that they needed to make methamphetamine. And countries all around the world were doing this at the same time. They were restricting access, the public's access, to pseudoephedrine. Mm. Okay, but what happened then was um, cartels in Mexico, um, warlords up in Myanmar figured out, ooh, there's a big gap in the market, right? And so methamphetamine production, they, they have these super labs in these countries, in, in Mexico, in Myanmar. These super labs can churn out tons of methamphetamine. And so what you saw is domestic production really go down. But the international um, methamphetamine trade has gone through the absolute roof, right? I think in the late 1990s, they were, they were getting like a ton of methamphetamine a year. Last year, they got nearly 400 tons, right? The amount of meth coming into New Zealand now is mm. insane. We're, uh, multiple times this year, our record for the biggest bust has been broken. Twice this year, we've had busts of around three quarters of a ton mm. of methamphetamine coming in. So, yeah, it, it really has evolved. Um, yeah, even though I think with good intentions that they came in with this, yeah. you know, the pseudoephedrine ban, it did, it did kind of transform yeah. things. It's, it's interesting to compare the approach to methamphetamine, which is often erred on the punitive side of things, yeah. with the health approach that we've taken with some other drugs, even in small ways like needle exchanges and things like that. What do you think it will take in New Zealand from a policy perspective to get better control over methamphetamine use and reduce it among New Zealand adults? So, yeah, I mean... Tricky question, but one of the um, Helen Clark and the New Zealand Drug Foundation they put out a report um, about a year ago, I think, and they sort of argued that maybe it's time to trial a safe supply scheme, right? Where where you'd go out into communities and basically give people amphetamines, alternatives to methamphetamine, or even methamphetamine itself, to try and get them out of the black market, to try and get them away from the gangs, mm. and overseas and even with um, methadone and stuff like that. Mm. When when you give people supply to the, these drugs through a government-funded scheme, basically, pretty quickly the use starts coming down. They're not having to commit crimes in order to raise money to get the methamphetamine in the first time. I think it'll be tricky to do that, especially given the geography of methamphetamine. We know it's really concentrated in small, often Māori rural towns in New Zealand. That's where use is the highest. Right. So rolling out a safe supply scheme, I, th I think geographically would, would be tricky in New Zealand, but I think it's worth a shot, right? Because I think... Methamphetamine, undoubtedly very, very harmful, but almost so much more of the harm comes, you know, from, from the gangsters and the gangs that are running the drug, right? The standovers, the beatings, the untold murders, and they're just so in control of the methamphetamine trade now that it's coming in internationally. Um, I, I think yeah. I'll give that a go if I was the government, at least explore it. Hey, if it didn't work, well, so be it, but it'd at least be a shot to try and get, you know, people out of these you know, yeah. horrendous situations. Yeah, it is a fascinating mm. subject. Congratulations. I don't know how you find enough hours in the day <laughs> to get, get through it all, but we really appreciate your time. Benedict Collins' yes. new book is Mad on Meth, How New Zealand Got Hooked on Pee. And the book is out at all good bookstores this week. Hey, Akumane, we're back after the break. That is Q&A for this week from the Q&A team. Thanks for watching. Nā mihi ki a koutou i karere. Thanks for your feedback. Hei tērā wiki. We will see you next Sunday at 9am. Q&A is public interest journalism funded through New Zealand On Air.